This is a Federal News Network podcast. Senator Maggie Hassan has a plan to fix an oversight gap in the last major federal technology law Congress passed. And it can't come too soon for agencies like USAID and the Commerce Department. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why the New Hampshire Democrats' goal to fix the Modernizing Government Technology, or MGT Act, is critical to the broader IT modernization effort. Jason joins me now with the latest. Jason, what is that hole in the MGT Act that Senator Hassan needs to plug up? Tom, over the last two, three, four years, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Technology Modernization Fund and how great it is, right? And how that's going to really answer all the questions of IT modernization or solve all the problems. But what people seem to overlook, and I think this is what Senator Hassan is really trying to focus on, is the working capital funds, which she calls it the need for a technical amendment or a technical fix to the MGT Act, because what the intent was from people like former Congressman Will Hurd and current Congressman Jerry Connolly and others was to give every agency the ability to establish a working capital fund where they could spend money on IT modernization and any money they saved could go back into that fund for future projects. And what what basically is happening is the appropriators say you may have the authority, but you don't have the ability to do it. Like maybe Congress said you are able to establish them, but we give you the approval to establish them and the appropriators just haven't given the approval. And a perfect case is the U.S. Agency for International Development. Jay Mahan, the CIO, told members of the House Oversight Reform Subcommittee on Government Operations just two weeks ago that he's asked for the Working Capital Fund Authority in 2019, in 2020, and again in 2021. And each time as the Congress finalized the budget, the appropriators said no to the request. And this is despite USAID having approval from the Trump administration, from the Office of Management and Budget. They went through the entire process and every Everyone said yes, 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 until it got to Congress, who said no. And there's no clear reason why. And USAID is not alone. Education and commerce departments also have failed what I call the appropriator's gauntlet. And only the Small Business Administration has received that authority to set up a working capital fund. And they were able to transfer in, in, in 2021, for instance, they expect to transfer up to $4 million from 2020 into that fund and another $2 million in 2021. So they, they expect to have, you know, it's not a lot of money, but it's better than nothing, especially, Tom, you and I know money expires in government. It sure does. So therefore, that working capital fund authority is really crucial to the modernization effort using the TMF money. Well, not necessarily using the TMF money. There's two separate pieces, right? You apply for the TMF money through the board. That's like a loan, right? But this working capital fund allows you, oh, well, I used to pay $39 per license. Now I'm paying $30 per license. I can take that other $9 that I would have planned to spend and put it in my bank account to use for later. And I think that's really the power of the MGT Act. We all love the TMF because it's sexy and it's big, and now it has a billion dollars. But sure. Tom, you know, as we know, the technical debt in government is over three, four, five billion dollars. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And beyond that working capital fund issue, the GAO, Congress, says there are some other shortcomings that OMB needs to get a fix on. What are some of those? Agencies are lacking an IT modernization plan. Now, it sounds weird because everyone has an IT modernization strategy, but not necessarily a plan for how to move from legacy systems to modernized systems. And GAO's Kevin Walsh, the director of IT and cybersecurity, talked said this was actually very disheartening when, when GAO looked 
back in 2019 at 10 agencies, and, and three didn't have any long-term IT modernization plans. Five had some aspects of a plan, and only two had a firm idea of what needs to be done. He goes, the plan is valuable because it's not just about having a documented plan, but it's understanding where your resources are, what you're able to throw at it, what timeframes you're working on, even the scope of the project. Walsh calls this a fundamental step to getting off of legacy systems. Now, Tom, if you remember back in 2016, OMB actually put out a draft memo that would have required these IT modernization plans, and Walsh points out that the guidance was never finalized. And that got me thinking, because I remember writing that story back in 2016, so I reached out to Tony Scott the former federal CIO who authored that draft memo. I asked him a little bit more about what was going on, and he told me by email this: the goal was to institutionalize a set of practices that would, at budget formulation time, identify for agency leadership and for appropriators, key here, the top priority systems to upgrade and replace. He was looking to really force a deliberate decision-making at budget time that would either A, accept the risk of the legacy systems, or B, put money in a budget to do something about it. And these were you know, some of the top-tier systems to review against things like cybersecurity and privacy risk, whether it was meeting the mission well, whether there were things they could do that would improve how they met their mission, and whether the system was not going to be supported by the provider anymore, you know, old, you know, Windows, you know, ME or something, right, Tom? <laughs> yes, indeed. So, so I think that was part of it. Now, I asked others who were at OMB at the time, well, what happened to the memo? And Matt Cornelius, the executive director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation, and he was over at OMB at the time in a senior technology and cybersecurity advisor role. And he goes, basically, OMB got a ton of comments. And when the election happened in 2016, they just kind of moved on. The, the Trump administration came in and said, we're going to have other priorities. It's not that IT modernization wasn't important. They just took a different tact. And I think they really also spent a lot of time focusing on TMF dollars and how to get that out the door. And But, but I think not having that IT modernization plan really has a longer-term impact than, than maybe we've realized. And then there's one other factor on the IT planning process that agencies have to do and their ability to have a clear plan and go proceed with it, and that is the congressional budget process itself. That is probably the biggest challenge a lot of agencies do face. And in fact, uh, the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee had a hearing last week where uh, Senator Hassan was the chairwoman of, and they, she brought in three former CIOs, Casey Coleman, who spent time at GSA, Renee Wynn, who spent time at both EPA and NASA, and then Max Everett, who was the energy CIO most recently. And all of them said very similar that the budget was the, the hardest challenge. And in fact, Max Everett, the former energy CIO, talked about robbing Peter to pay Paul for a lot of his modernization projects. He said he was lucky enough to have some multi-year money, but if he had single-year money, it, it really put a downward pressure on that project to do something, and, and, and you can't move that quickly in government. Renee Wynn, the former NASA CIO, said the same thing. Every time a project crosses a fiscal year, there's more risk added because of the potential loss of time and or people because of budgets and disruptions to the budgets. She said she used to try to take a reserve and create a reserve of money to extend that project into the fiscal year while Congress was negotiating new or an updated budget for, for that fiscal year. And I think part of the, the goal of the Working Capital Fund, just to bring this back home, Tom, is if you had that reserve of money already, you wouldn't have to create it because you'd have it. And you could also then make decisions based on, well, this project is at a critical point. We need to add money to it so it will kind of move forward more quickly or we're adding more risk, as Renee Wynn said. If you don't have that Working Capital Fund authority, it's much more difficult to do. Well, let's hope Congress has some time on this busy agenda to take care of those technical fixes. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. 
Always a pleasure, Tom. Check out his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community, so it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt. Uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, 
to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader 
and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.